You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Hopefully everybody's doing well. I'm on the road again this week. I'm traveling throughout New York, working with some clients. I will be away, and then next week, more clients. So as the uh, the season goes on, I continue to work. A lot of consultants are usually done in the springtime. I go all the way through hunting season and then into hunting season i will be doing clients this year and i will be cutting timber this year during hunting season so that's exciting for me i'm thinking ahead and just planning everything out a couple things one housekeeping like always uh, i would like everyone who follows this podcast you can email me any questions that you have in regards to topics i want to make sure that we're hitting all the key topics and things that you all want to listen to and think about a lot of these agenda topics that have been presented currently are between myself and the contributing guests so you know if anybody wants to hear anything specific i am all ears um, i have a list of things that i want to go through uh, through this summer and topics etc that are going to help you improve your hunting property that's it for housekeeping. Let's get into the topic today and the guest. So I'm excited. New guest. So Kenny Kane, he's out of Kane, Pennsylvania. He's a professional forester and he has a very unique perspective on things. I, I think he's one of these guys that's a little bit different than the rest. He, he really is looking to blend wildlife improvements with forest management. A lot of people don't have the experience. He's a hunter, he's an outdoorsman, and he's really had a chance to kind of fine-tune his approach 
and I really like a different perspective on things. We have Tim Russell on here, right? He's, you know, our professional forester we typically leverage, but I wanted to bring somebody else on to get, you know, their opinion and approach to, to how to manage, you know, woodlots. And, and most of the clients that I have, you know, it's not just a giant field we're doing conversion on. I mean, it, it could be dense timber and we have to make some decisions. So it's always good to have, you know, a professional opinion. So Kenny, are you on the line? Yes, sir. I am, John. All right. Hey, so let's t- tell me a little bit about yourself. You're from Pennsylvania. L- let's just give a little more about b- about you. Yeah, so I'm from a small town in northwestern Pennsylvania called Kane, Pennsylvania, with my last name being Kane. There's a lot of jokes about that. I'm related somehow to the founder, but no one wants to claim me, so I don't really blame <laughs> them. Uh, But so I got into forestry at a real young age. Uh, My father is a forester and I followed in his footsteps. So, you know, when I was a little kid following around him at the woods would turn into about an hour of me walking with uh, him and a client on a property. And then it would turn into getting carried around. So he got an extra workout in when, when I was younger, carrying me around in the woods, but he never thought I'd want to get into forestry with kind of, petering out throughout the day in the woods but it's something that was in my blood and i just wanted to stick with uh you know so we are a consulting forestry company called generations forestry uh you know not just because it's a multi-generational company but we're looking at managing the forest for the generations to come you know a lot of our client base we're dealing with now second third and fourth generation ownerships So that's our main goal. You know, forestry just isn't here and now. It's something that you got to look at the history and then look to the future of what, you know, what the forest is telling you. You know, so that's a little, that's a little bit about myself. Yeah. I like the fact that you, you're the business, you know, has like this generational acknowledgement where you're, you're working with these clients for some period of time. And I've noticed that with, with uh, individuals that I've worked with, individual foresters and, and land clients, where they, they have this great connection, you know, to an individual. And same thing applies in my business. Um, I'm, of course, tied to these clients. And in turn, I'm working with maybe their resident forester or somebody they've used for a long time. And I'm introducing ideas and concepts that may be slightly different then maybe, you know, that individual's recommending and it's kind of a blending or a melding of, of options for, for clients. So, you know, I'm kind of hoping the same thing prevails with me that these clients are kind of looking forward and thinking ahead and, and right. A lot of the clients of course are focused on deer hunting and improving their deer hunting, not just timber. So, you know, one of the topics I kind of wanted to start with and, you know, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but you know, I go to a lot of client properties and I'm making recommendations, prescriptions specifically, and how to attack a forest setting. And a lot of times it's tough because you've got a small 20, 30, 40, 50, under 100 acre property, and they may not even have the volume, uh, a volume of trees that are saleable, at least, you know, over time. It may have been high graded at one point mismanaged, et cetera. What are you seeing on the landscape from a high grading standpoint or mismanagement um, of, of the forest stand? And, you know, what are your thoughts today, how to improve those things and also kind of weighing that against wildlife? It's, it's a, it's a pretty um, deep uh, convoluted and also, you know, topic that a lot of people are unsure how to attack. So I'm kind of interested in your perspective. 
you know, it, John, it's, it's something that I see. I hate to say it almost every day, you know, whether it's you're driving down the highway or if you're going to meet with a client and you come onto their property and you're just like, Oh boy, you know what, what happened here? And you can look around and it really depends on what region you're in on how bad the high grading took place. And you can, you know, kind of look at the stand and look at the history of it, look at stumps and say, huh, okay. Yep. 20 years ago. Uh, yeah. All your cherry, uh, all of the stumps I see are black cherry because cherry was king 20 years ago, had a huge economic value, you know? So you got to look at the stands and it'll tell you a history lesson just by looking at it of, you know, diameter class, you know, the diameter of the stumps that are there, you know, what the uh, understory and mid canopy looks like and the species composition of it. And, you know, a lot of it happened of people just looking for that quick flash in the pan money, you know, because, hey, time, you know, times have always been tough. And, you know, people may be forced to mismanage their property because of an economic circumstance they have or the lack of education that, and, it's getting better. There's a lot of resources out there from, uh, you know, with yourself being in New York, the uh, D- New York DEC has a lot of good information. Cornell University Forestry Program has a lot of good information. And then myself being a Pennsylvania guy and a Penn State graduate, Penn State Cooperative Extension has phenomenal information available for uh, private landowners so that if you run into that smooth talking I hate, I don't want to use the term forester, but a timber, timber uh, person that would say, oh, hey, why don't we, let's cut all your big trees so the little ones will grow. Well, that's not the case, but it's like, it's easy to buffalo someone into thinking that's the right thing to do. So with the educational tools that are out there now, hopefully less and less of that will happen. Um you know, so that, that's one of the biggest things, but I, but you know, then we fall into cleaning up that high grade. And now a lot of the uh, professional forestry organizations that are out there, uh, society of American foresters, we just had our regional meeting, you know, a couple months back and it was focusing on restoration forestry of how to restore these high graded timber stands So, you know, a lot of tools are out there now that weren't there 10 years ago, but we're trying to adapt the forest to manage it better, you know, not only for timber production, but for wildlife production. And, you know, now more research is being done on correcting high grades. So, and I look at, you know, just because I meet with a client and find a high graded timber stand, I don't look at it and say, oh God, let's run away. This isn't economically viable i look at it and hey this is a challenge let's bring it on you know i want to fix this mess so you can have a better forest because hey you want to you bought this property to hunt let's create some really good deer habitat some grouse habitat and while we're creating that deer habitat they may just be strictly on the uh deer hunting mindset and i'm sure you run into that a lot because that's what you do and i look at it say hey we're going to create you some phenomenal deer hunting habitat, but we're going to clean this mess up so that your 
you know, your son, your daughter, you know, your grandchild that, you know, in 20, 30 years, they're going to have possibly a, you know, economically viable timber sale and a very productive wildlife property. So, Kenny, let me ask you a question. So a lot of times I'm, I'm on these properties and, you know, the trees have to pay them their way out of the woods. And you're looking at your landscape and you're saying, okay, I know what the stumpage prices are. I know what kind of the average, you know, volume that I'm going to probably get out of this. I, I've calculated that as a, as a landowner. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're calculating boards per, per foot, those type of things. Minimally, and this is the part that I struggle with. Minimally, you know, they want to get a certain amount of logs, log trucks to fill up to make it economically viable. Let's say it's 10,000, mm-hmm. 15,000 board foot. Let's just say that's the threshold mm-hmm. of pain. Yep. And, you know, there's no complications. It's easy access. Everything plays out right. And then those same clients want to improve their hunting property and they want really dense, dense, dense cover and they want to manage it over time. The, the problem I see consistently is, I don't mind, you know, taking one area and doing a heavy cut and not being so, we'll just say particular, selecting one tree versus the next in, in a in a smaller area. But I see them doing it over a large area. So what happens is the focus of that stand and the density of cover that eventually evolves is expanded. It expands into a very large area and it becomes almost unmanageable, if that makes sense, because of the density and the mismanagement. And like you said earlier, the the species composition changes so dramatically. You you may not have, you know, timber in those areas over long term. And I guess the one thing that I struggle with is you know, when I'm going in an area and I'm working it, I'm selecting tree species and, and I am thinking about, you know, stumpage prices and, you know, what the client's trying to get out of it economically. I'm, I am thinking about that. It's hard for me sometimes to balance, you know, their demands with thinking about, you know, restoration or in this case, like sustainable harvest. And I, I struggle with that concept because it, on a small property, you only have so many trees to work with. And it's, it sometimes gets a little bit out of control. Like I'll give you a good example on my own property. I own 50 acres. And what I did is I didn't high grade the property, but I took the larger, older trees out of that. Some of the co-dominant trees are now dominant trees in the landscape. After four or five years, you've already seen them start to blow up mm-hmm. and I've started to do selective thinning. And I, I kind of, you know, I could go back and cut in another 10 years, but but I needed to get some of those bigger trees out of there to get the system rolling. And sometimes that's okay, in my opinion, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, equate to a long-term strategy and plan, so to speak. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, how do you look at the woodlot? You know, what, what strategies do you look at where you're just not removing all the best trees, you're thinning appropriately. What is the approach that you would take as, as kind of a landowner? Put yourself in the landowner's yeah. shoes. Yeah. So what I do every time when I go meet with a client, I'm sure you do the same thing is, Hey, how are you doing? Nice to meet you. What are your goals and expectations of the property? You know, some in my, in my shoes, you run into them. Hey, this is strictly a timber investment. I want to, you know, own it for 20 years, cut some timber and then sell it. And I'll, I I don't hunt, but I just want to hike or ride my side by side or mountain bike or whatever you please. Or they're the people that, Hey, listen, myself and my brother and cousin and nephew and niece, we're going to build a cabin and we're going to be hunting on this property. So 
I want to create the best deer hunting or grouse hunting, turkey hunting habitat I can. And we, you know, write a management plan based off of their goal, goals and expectations. And then I really start at the ground up. When I look at a property, it's okay. What do I have on the forest floor? Do I have invasives? Do I have, uh, you know, right now the invasive train is picking up hot and heavy, you know, do you have buckthorn? Do you have stilt grass, barberry, and then just, you know, some of your natives, but are non-desirable of, you know, beach that's infested with the beet scale nectar complex, black birch, you know, things that you aren't trying to grow and then start looking up from there. And it's like, okay, do I have anything in the, uh, you know, pole size stands? Do I have anything in the medium saw timber, large saw timber? You know, how about my canopy? Do I have a, you know, and then as I'm going through that, looking at species composition, am I in a uh, northern hardwood oak hickory forest or am I in, uh, you know, myself, I'm on the Allegheny Plateau. So am I on an Allegheny hardwood species composition of, you know, black cherry ash that is disappearing by the day, you know, tulip poplar, soft maple, hard maple, what's my species composition and what, uh, you know, what I'm targeting to grow as a saw timber species and what I'm looking to uh, promote is regeneration and then start, you know, that's my base is what I'm looking at. Yeah, that, that and, makes uh, a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yep. yep. And, you know, and we'll, you know, we kind of started on high grading. So you have to, in a lot of these 100, 200 acre or, you know, 50, 20 acre pieces that, you know, maybe an old 100 acre farm and there was 30 acres of timber and the farmer, the term we used and we use in our neck of the woods, it's got farmer fleeced. They got the wool pulled over their eyes by someone and they got high graded. <laughs> you know so what can we do to fix that to get you know maybe if the uh in, if the overstory is thin there's not much left like hey if there's only going to be one viable economic harvest before you're at a regeneration cut is we have to look at getting rid of that most often is that non-desirable mid canopy a lot of beech and birch was left because it has had no economic value depending on where you are and you know one of the biggest things that is a cause of high grading as well is the lack of markets for this low grade product you know so i tell everyone that in cane pa it's in the absolute middle of nowhere but we're spoiled because we have a market for every wood product available i mean we have sawmills you know you drive down any road that leaves King PA, you're going to find a sawmill within 30 miles, probably a couple, you know, not only that, we have a monstrous paper mill. We have Dom tar paper. We have clarion board, which is right off interstate 80 that, uh, you know, makes a press board. We have Georgia Pacific, which is a particle board plant. So we have three huge outlets for these low grade markets. And now in Kane PA, where they put in a, uh, I guess you'd call it a distilling plant that's going to be distilling uh, birch bark for essential oils. Hmm. So it's like, holy cow, now we have a market for this one to four inch birch that used to cost a bunch of money to get out of the way so you could get regeneration. But if you get up in your neck of the woods, there's not much for that low grade market, which is a 
cause now it's an expense for a landowner rather than be it like a break even or a slim possibility of a small return of removing that low grade non non uh, desirable mid canopy but now we get into your neck of the woods and you have no real market for it other than firewood and so that, that's a that's a tough situation to be in for a lot of people i have clients in this boat all the time where you know, those mm-hmm. trees are not going to pay their way out of the woods. Yep. And you're sitting there saying, okay, so what's the balance? You know, do you high grade? And then as a result, they can do, you know, additional timber work or timber stand improvement for future objectives. And, you know, you're kind of weighing those or the client, you know, maybe they have the capability, you know, they're harvesting those trees, removing them or, you know, cutting them to the ground, selling them for fire, whatever, whatever the case may mm-hmm. be, you know, the client themselves has to have a management approach, you know, on the landscape, because again, there is no mill taking, you know, those, those low grade trees. And, and that's the problem I'm running into, like you just said. Yeah. So, you know, how do you approach this? You've got trees of value and then trees of no value, essentially, in these markets. And you've got to know those markets. Like, one of the problems I think individuals are having is they don't know where to what the outlet is. They don't know what mill to talk to. The, you know, there's maybe some local mills. I would recommend going to going to the foreman or somebody running those mills and having a conversation say, do you take any low grade stuff? I mean, is there any, you know, pallet type timber that you're looking mm-hmm. for um, and try to make those relationships? Cause you don't know, they may know somebody um, that's, that's shipping yes. loads in, you know, to some location. It could be even in Pennsylvania for that matter. How would you go about that situation where you have yeah. some, some decent timber and then, then some low grade stuff? I mean, so I would look at that, you know, if you're a landowner and need advice and, you know, in your and I situations, this is, this is our job. This is our career. You know, it, it costs money for us to be around at times. Uh, you know, so reaching out to the local service forester, you know, PA, the DCNR service forester for your county, uh, Penn State Extension, and they can educate you on, uh, you know, markets that are available. Or, or then reaching out to a professional forester like myself of saying, hey, what markets are available? Is there any uh, you know, funding available from any of the USDA programs or private programs, tree farm, you know, things like that? But then, you know, if then talking with the landowner saying, hey, are you willing to invest your own personal, you know, your own personal money? Or are you willing to invest some sweat equity into your property? You know, say, hey, if you could, you know, you and your your brother, niece, nephew, son, daughter, you know, grandpa, grandma, whoever is able to uh, be out there working on the property and, you know, do some brush cutting or do some herbicide treatments, you know, do things like that and invest some sweat equity into a, if you're a smaller landowner. Or if you're willing to invest, you know, some of your own personal money into that property of doing those programs and hiring a professional and, you know, doing a, her- you know, a landscape base, a larger, you know, herbicide application or a TSI timber stand improvement. And, and that's where I'd look at it of, okay, if I, uh, you know, make the investment of spending a hundred to $200 an acre to do a, you know, where if I have a real bad beach and birch mid canopy. And I know, oh, I can't, you know, it's not recommended to do a timber sale today, but if I can do a TSI project now, I'll get a return on my investment in five years because there is a viable timber sale there 
and you're running a much, much higher percentage of getting desirable regeneration. So then that's when your return on investment will come because you're going to be getting down woody debris on the ground, creating cover. You know, you're going to be creating bedding areas for deer. You're going to be getting more sunlight on the ground, hopefully getting the desirable regeneration that you want coming through that's going to create browse. And so as that five-year time span before your next timber harvest or your first or only timber harvest, your return on investment is wildlife habitat. And, you know, seeing a uh, family member shoot a good buck or shoot their first turkey, oh, that's worth more than any dollar you can make in a timber sale in my eyes. Yeah, I agree. So let's, um, let's, let's back up. You know, I'm walking onto a client property and it's been high graded and they've taken the best and they've left, you know, a lot of understory species and, and plants and some of them may be good. Flowering dogwood could mm-hmm. be an example, yep. serviceberry, hawthorn, you know, For sure. those are yep. all good species to, to have. And, and that's, again, you talked about species richness. Those mm-hmm. are, those are important understory trees to have. Yep. But a lot of the good stuff, like the valuable stuff, the the economic, you know, gain mm-hmm. is is has been taken out of the woodlot, and they and they've, you know, you've bought this piece and dealing with the ramifications of that. So let's get into really specifics, and let's just say it's a, yep. a maple, I don't know, maple beach uh, forest. Essentially, that that probably be a good example. In a lot of areas that I'm working with. What do you, sure. How do you how do you what would you approach that as and would you do it a TSI project? I know it's stand specific. You got to look at the quality of trees right. that were left, but how would you kind of just attack that in your opinion? Yeah, you know, the way I'd look at it first being stand specific. Excuse me, and I'm going to throw in a third species into that stand, especially in in your neck of the woods. And folks, you know, a lot of the folks as we're both eastern guys, white tail guys, uh, ash. Because I'm sure you're seeing it your way is I think you're east enough that you still have healthy ash in your timber stands. But if you follow any of the interstate corridors, you're going to see a lot of dying ash and they they will grow together. You know, so having that where 30 years ago, you could not regenerate ash in Pennsylvania because it was such a viable deer browse. Now we can regenerate ash like crazy because their seed production is up because they know that they're stressed due to the emerald ash borer and it's a great deer browse so that's a good thing that we're going to have in the bank you know you're going to have a seed bank there but also things have been changing with the beach as in the 1980s the beach scale nectar complex and have you seen that up your way i'd imagine so yes sir we have okay so and i in my career, and I'll say in my father's career, when he got started in the early 80s in the forest industry, they they were doing beach salvages left and right because all the beach was dying. It wasn't very valuable, but it was a species that you have to salvage it for a landowner before it becomes absolutely a zero value. And me, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years now. And just in the last two years, I have seen beach nuts like I've never seen in my short career. And my father and his, you know, 30 plus years in the industry goes, I've never seen beach nuts like this since I was a kid. So you'd really have to look at those beach very hard before you just went on a rampage with a uh, 
you know, a backpack sprayer or a chainsaw cutting every beach that you do, every beach that you come across or treating it with herbicide to get rid of all of it. Because some of those trees may be resistant to the beach scale. And if you have a beach that's producing beach nuts and we're, you know, looking to uh, hunt whitetail, oh, please do not, do not cut that tree down. You want that one there. <laughs> please I, don't. I love, we, uh, Tim Russell and I are going to do a podcast about beach specifically coming up. Him and right. I are, I have found a stand of beach that is pristine. I just found it last week on a client property and I'm, I'm actually Don't tell anyone I'm not telling anybody <laughs> and you are, you are dead on. I mean, I can't get over the production value that I've seen over the past several years. And, right. and I'm talking two, two to three years. Is that, is that what you're seeing? Oh as well? yeah, absolutely. And I'm telling, I'm telling everybody, like I'll go on a client property and they'll be like, you know, my consulting forester and, and no disrespect to foresters, you know, they're, they're really, no, talk, they're talking about, you know, just improving, you know, this, the, the economic benefit. And they're like, you know, we got to get rid of the beach and we got to generate, you know, they're, they're doing yeah. regeneration cuts and herbicide whole nine. And I just said, stop, like you're just killing yourself. You're, you're, if one of your goals is to sustain wildlife and, and mm -hmm. you want a productive tree right now, you know, that's probably one of the most, I guess, valuable trees in the landscape, in, in my opinion. And, um, you know, hickories, we've, we've really seen hickory production yes. increase significantly as well. So yep. I don't know what's yep. going on, but it seems like there's and more nut producing than, than there ever has been as of recent. I, I can agree with that. And okay. then I'll say on, on my side of the board, you know, I'll say another little plug for Kane PA we're noted as the black cherry capital of the world is, you know, we have a very unique ecosystem down there with our soil grows black cherry better than anyone else until now, because we're seeing a major G decline in our cherry in our black cherry. And there's a whole bunch of theories behind it, but it's like, wow, we had beach that was dying off one after the other, the last 30, 40 years. And now we're like, holy cow, beach is on a little bit of a comeback. It's yeah. producing beach nuts like, whoa, but we can't get a viable cherry seed. We can't get our cherry leaves to stay on until the fall. You, you come up onto the Allegheny Plateau in August and it, it'll look like October. Yeah, so that's it's like, crazy. What, what's going on? It's it's hard to wrap your head around, yeah. but it's like a lot of things are switching. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is so strange. The cyclical situation, and and you're mm -hmm. you're right. My my family farm is not far from you. A little place called Whitesville, New York, which is outside mm -hmm. of Wellsville. So it's not far yep. from you at all. Not far and, at all. And uh, you, you're right. You are that that was the cherry capital of the world in the '90s and '80s and '90s mm -hmm. and you know, a lot of money was made at, at, during that time period. And, and I have seen similar to what you're suggesting with the productivity of cherries, which again, mm -hmm. oddly enough, you're just bringing this up. I'm recognizing now what I've been seeing. I want to get back for a second. So, you know, we yes, talked about, I could go down a cherry rabbit hole. So <laughs> keep me out of it. Yeah. Keep me out of it. You had the idea of the salvage, right? The salvage situation mm -hmm. with the ash trees, the salvage situation mm -hmm. with the beach in the eighties, now we're talking about making some selections and looking at the landscape, say, okay, 
you know, I, I need to create, you know, maybe some openings in specific areas. Maybe they're temporary openings that we're hoping to regenerate a stand or uh, permanent openings that we're going to manage over time. Uh, maybe some variable thinning in there. We're going to take out some selective trees. And then adjacent to that, we're going to focus on value. And when I, I say value, I'm talking about sustainable harvest, mm-hmm. you know, timber economic stand. I mean, that's kind of where our focus is going to be. Let's start making some selections. Let's look at the tree yep. species. Let's look at their form, their, you know, the, the volume, the, the density, the, the closeness of the trees. Like, what, what are your decisions in those specific examples? How do you evaluate yep. a tree? And I got one more other question for you. When you're going mm-hmm. through this, can you explain, because I get confused sometimes. Well, there was a co-dominant tree that was basically dwarfed by a, a tree maybe adjacent to it. You can see the remnants of that tree, and that tree may take off. It may not be a very productive tree. How do you how do you know? Like that's How do you know that's going to be a good tree? One of the biggest things to look at is to where it's at within that stand. If it's a, and, you know, look at it, is it, you know, a lot of, you know, Eastern part of the U S we're on even aged management, you know, Pennsylvania, for example, was clear cut in the early, you know, the industrial revolution, late 1800s, early 1900s. And that is why we have the forests that we have today. And I listened to your podcast that you did with your forester. He, he gave a lot of really good information on, uh, you know, even age and uneven age management. And we have a lot of even aged management you know, in the East. So we're predominantly all the tree species are the same age. And, uh, you know, so, so I try to look at it in that co-dominant sense of, okay, is it co-dominant because it was just overtopped by a, you know, a monstrous oak tree that had a huge canopy and it just genetically was stronger, you know, so you have to look, is, is that co-dominant tree going to be able to grow into something or is it just stagnant? You know, a lot like hard maples a very, is a very good tree, for example. And in our neck of the woods, they really aren't going to grow any bigger. You guys grow hard maple a heck of a lot better than we do. We do. So those coat, those co-dominant hard maple, and I just get sick looking, well, sick and excited at the quality of the logs of, oh my goodness, I wish I had a, you know, a 16 inch log that had a two inch heart and down here, you have a 16 inch log with a 14 inch heart, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, we got <laughs> just... super, super, super white sapwood. I mean, we got it. Yeah. We, we got Beautiful. some of the best hard maple and I, I just feel like in, in the, the country it's, is right here in, yes. in this area. Yep. Yes. And yep. then you just got to keep all the caps out of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a whole different story, but uh, you know, so like in your neck of the woods, those codom- the co-dominant hard maple will grow into something in our neck of the woods, those co-dominant you know, red oak, tulip poplar, things of that sort, they, they will keep growing, but they're never going to be that, you know, 26 inch tree. That's, you know, 20 yards away from it. They're just not going to be that, but Hey, I thought I was good at basketball, but I'm not LeBron James. Never going to be, you know, we have to look at trees that way too, you know? So, so in that selection process, back to that as, uh, you know, will, will that co-dominant tree turn into a dominant? And then what, you know, what has suppressed it? Was it suppressed from the get-go? You know, when, if timber was harvested there 20 years ago and the tree really never has done anything, it's, then it's never going to be that dominant tree. 
But if it's co-dominant because there was a, you know, due to crown closure from another, you know, another set of trees around it, then maybe the dominant tree that's there is a soft maple. And hey, well, let's get rid of that soft maple and that co-dominant tree is a red oak or a white oak. Well, hey, that's what I want there if I'm, you know, looking to keep some diversity and regeneration and a seed source for the future. And that's what I want there as a mass producer for you know, white-tailed deer hunting and trying to keep some good diversity throughout my timber stand of the residual trees is what I'm really looking for. Yeah, I like the idea of diversity and I, I, I like the selection and examples there. You know, my basic rules are really simple. Uh, tall, straight tr- trunks, right, with very little mm-hmm. epicorn, uh, insect disease damage, any yep. type of scars, decay, you know, even, you know, any, any damage from logging previously, those are all considerations. I mean, you're looking at mm-hmm. full healthy crowns, you know, expansion of that, removing trees adjacent, thinking about spacing, relative spacing. Yes. Those are all those that play into my decision in, in that location to say, okay, mm-hmm. I, I like these openings, temporary or permanent openings and adjacent to those openings. That's where I kind of like to work kind of more the timber side of it, where I'm trying to get the mm-hmm. economic, you know, he- healthy, sustainable number of trees on a per you know acre basis and i kind of put rule sets in with my clients and you know maybe those rule sets aren't you know necessarily you know the perfect prescription but it gives them kind of numbers to work with based upon right. you know, the scaling and you know what that that landscape's intended to hold and then kind of work with the understory and that's kind of like my strategy with with my clients and Again, I'm not a professional forester, and I want to make sure that everyone knows that, but that's kind of some of the prescriptions that I get into. And like, I guess my, my, always my concern is in the thinning process, you know, whether it's an individual tree, a group of trees, you know, you have a goal to kind of sustain or rehabilitate an area. And I think the thing that I get stuck on is, okay, you cleared out, you basically took all the good stuff and you got all this like poor forming forky u-shaped trees that are just you know yes and you're like okay i gotta cut these down and it's like well you might have to mm-hmm. start over and they're like what what do you mean like you're gonna have to right. cut and that's a hard conversation to have do you, oh, do you have to it's it's, a, how do you do that <laughs> how do you do it you it, know it's a, it's a very hard pill to swallow very i mean very hard pill to swallow especially you know you run into a lot of folks now and you know are absentee owners they live in you know, the Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, New York city, Buffalo areas, and they want their piece of, you know, piece of heaven in Potter County. Well, they don't realize what they bought. And you tell them like, Hey, listen, we, your trees that are here, you know, your, your overstory trees that you think are big and beautiful. They're, they're hollow. They're rotten. They're, you know, decayed. They're, they're, they're never going to be anything we have to start over and trying to, you know, and trying to convey that message is a challenge. But one, you know, one of the things that I'm lucky enough to do is with our client base, we're like, Hey, I I can take clients to other clients' properties to show them different treatments that have been done to show them the success and then show them other properties saying, Hey, this person didn't do anything and look what they're stuck with. You know, they're stuck with this forever and you know, in, in the whitetail sense, you show them a property and show them the good habitat that can be created. Now it makes sense to them. 
because tying together forest management and wildlife management and how they're, you know, they coincide with one another. You know, you wouldn't get good wildlife habitat without creating good, you know, forest management. So, you know, trying to tie that message together is one of the tools that I use, you know, now, especially with a lot of, a lot of these smaller landowners that are looking for, you know, deer hunting, turkey hunting, bear hunting habitat. It's like, Hey, we're going to create really good deer habitat for you, but we're also fixing the forest for you, you know, not you, but your grandkids, your grandkids are going to benefit this, you know, benefit from this greatly in the timber sense, but you are going to benefit from this in the today sense of wildlife habitat. So Kenny, let me ask you another question. Cause this is a topic that comes up probably all the time and, and th- something mm-hmm. that you deal with. And I deal with is you've got a client who's purchased a piece of property. They've made a major investment. You know, their kids may not hunt. They may not be even thinking towards the future. They're thinking to the immediate expense that they just made. And they're trying to deal with that. And maybe they're trying to justify it to their wife or whoever, you know, they've, they've yes. made this, they've made this large expense and yes. they've got to start making decisions to recoup some of that investment. And the mm-hmm. the first thing that people say is I've got to make some, some logging decisions in order to kind of recoup. And I do work with clients in those situations quite often how do you mm-hmm. handle that dilemma and the short-term versus long-term thinking yeah the, and i've i've had ones where you tell them hey make, make that and i like i said earlier make that five-year investment today of the sweat equity or the you know the money investment of putting a couple hundred dollars per acre into the property today so that you can have a viable timber sale for you or if it is a property where it's like, hey, we, we could do a thinning and you know generate some revenue that, hey, you have a, a, a balloon payment on the mortgage where, hey, I understand, we got to do this, but gener- we'll generate you X, but hold back Y, like, you know, hold back 5 10% of that revenue to invest it back into the property. I like that idea. That's, yep. So, yeah. Uh, one of one of our larger clients is a uh, municipal water authority. My favorite property to work on. They wrote in their you know their city's management plan, their forest management plan that we wrote ten percent of every timber sale goes back into the property, whether it's for herbiciding TSI at the time. We don't have to yet, but the deer herd's on the rise. Deer fencing road grading, you know, culvert replacement, things like that. It goes back into forest management on the property. So we have a lot of our, you know, a lot of our private clients are saying, Hey, okay, I'm going to hold back, uh, you know, you generate them $20,000. Well, Hey, I I can hold back, you know, two, three, four, 5,000 bucks to do that uh, herbicide application for that fern that I have in the understory. So we're getting, you know, if you convey to them like, Hey, let, let's get that investment and it's going to, it's going to pay for itself in the long run. So that's one of the things that I really push. Like when we're doing a timber sale with someone, okay, if, if it's not going to pay the mortgage or you're going to lose the place, retain X amount of dollars so that we can do this next management activity for you. And those are my favorite clients to work for. And I have had clients where and it's just, well, I have, I have to justify buying this to my wife. And I said, hey, listen, we need to do this. this you know, 
and it was an economically viable uh, it was a beach salvage where we were just going to go through, cut all the beach out. We were able to sell all the pulp wood. It would generate a couple thousand bucks. And then in five, 10 years from now, I said, Hey, then we're going to have your home run timber sale to generate you, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Well, no, I, I need it now. And I just said that, that I can't do that. You know, I, I cannot, I, I can't recommend. And as a professional forester, I can't do that for you. Well, if you won't, I find I'll find someone that will. And that's one of those tough ones where as a land manager, I want the right thing to happen on every acre that I step on. But it's like he's gonna go find someone else to do it, but I morally cannot do that to him. You know, I couldn't do that to his property and go through and high grade it again. Yeah. It's like that that's one of the toughest pills to swallow when you can't convey that message to someone. And I tried the the wildlife habitat, the, you know, how, oh, we're going to make a great hunting habitat for the next five years as we do this, then we'll have your timber sale. Well, hey, you know, what about your your kids and, grand, you know, your kids and your grandkids? Well, my kids don't hunt. And my grandkids only care about TikTok. So I don't care. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, oh. And I'm afraid to drive up that road and thank God I haven't had to do it. But someone did what he wanted which was the worst thing that could have been done on his property. Yeah. And I look, I look at it this way and I'll take it from a more simpleton perspective. You know, you're, you, you may have to make some decisions to, to in the areas that like earlier, I was talking about selecting an area that I want to do a heavy cut in, because again, that's mm-hmm. the right location to have a bedding area. And I'm, I'm working with that stem density and, and let's be clear about something. Sometimes when I clear out an area, I'm leaving groupings, large grouping of trees. Mm-hmm. And those trees that I'm leaving are good seed sources in most cases. And yep. I'm thinking about that in my thinning selection. And I, I really struggle because I think a lot of people, you know, they don't know where to start. They don't really know, you know, and I gave some basic rules like, you know, fundamentals. But, you know, when you're looking at the size of the tree you know, the, the diameter of the tree, that's not an indicator at any capacity of the age of that tree in some, in some sense. Um, Correct. Sometimes it takes cutting down in a small adjacent tree to start doing the numbers game to figure out, well, maybe this stand, again, assuming it's an even age stand and it's just a co-dominant tree, you know, that may be an indicator of what the species age is like. And that's a, that's a good measurement mm-hmm. tool. It's a tool it that is. I've used for a simple, simple technique, just again, not having the awareness and saying, okay, well, based on that, I know that, you know, maybe these species of trees, we need to do a thinning here and we need to promote the trees that are doing better in this particular area. And so on a landscape, I'll go in and maybe I'll do some variable thinning. Then I'll do a TSI project where I'll take Mm -hmm. that rule of thumb and apply it and say, well, I release the trees. So in 10 or 15 years, you know, I'll get the crown growth that I need. I'll get the stem, you know, the stem gain that I want. And that tree will grow immensely. And, And now you're kind of weighing the wildlife piece of it you know, in concert with kind of managing for that future timber stand. And that, that's kind of my strategy. I don't know if it's a secret. It's, it's my strategy. Right. It's how I approach right. it. No. And that, that's a, and that's a great strategy because you as a, you know, wildlife manager and a whitetail property manager, you're still looking at, we're still looking at it through the same eyes, but we're projecting it in a different view. You know, you're still looking at it as, oh, I'm doing this for wildlife habitat, 
And I look at it and say, yeah, John, you are. And look what you're doing for forest management of it. And you could go through a stand where I do that thinning and I'm like, yeah, I'm doing this because I'm looking at, I can gain diameter growth here and here's my canopy and I'm going to get canopy closure here, but I want my canopy open over there. And I want room for this white oak top to be able to get a, you know, a good healthy canopy, you know, on, on growth and seed source. And we're just, uh, interpreting it different, but we're practicing it the same way, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And and the way you just explained it there, that variation amongst the landscape, that's the key to success. And then in five years, Mm -hmm. you reevaluate again, or maybe just in a couple of years, you reevaluate it, but you continue to look at its advancement. And, and again, when you have surplus trees and you want it, you're able to do that thinning on a property and it hasn't been high graded. That's the time to be very specific and mm-hmm. some cases you're going to take out the co-dominant trees and leave the dominant trees. Um, that's yep. where you have a managing forester to help you walk through those decisions. So you're making the correct ones. But you know, mm-hmm. one of the things I think people miss, and I'm just speaking from my heart here is they, they, they want everything cleaned up and looking really, really pristine and pretty. Yeah, it I, has to be pretty. I know I hate pretty. And I, I try exactly. to, I try to promote, you know, beauty on the edge and ugly in, in the middle. And, uh, exactly. you know, it's kind exactly. of this strategy that will get you yes. a little bit further along. Yes. It, and I'm conveying the message where, you know, people will be like, well, a, a clear cut, well, let's use the politically correct term, a regeneration harvest. <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah. It, a lot of people say, oh, it's so ugly. Oh, no, 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 no. It's beautiful. It is. Give it five years and it's beautiful. Yeah. For, yeah. for timber, for deer, for bear, for grouse, it's it's the right thing to do. You just have to look at it to, with the right set of glasses on. We, we simply call it, uh, Josh, who works for me, he's a logger. Uh, we call it mm-hmm. organized chaos, and that organized chaos yes. is maybe in a state of disarray temporarily, but the, mm-hmm. uh, the chaos kind of subsides as management comes into play. And then, you know, I love it because my piece of it is I like the maintenance thing uh, with a lot of these clients who get right. to come back and work with them and kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, you're like talking about, you know, the next stage where people are saving that two, three, four, five, ten thousand dollars and said, okay, I've made this cut, you know, two, three, four years later, you're maintaining roads. Maybe you're doing some TSI work, you're cutting mm-hmm. trails, you're making things a little more accessible. You know, those type of things are are really valuable. And and to your point earlier, investing in your property or reinvesting in your property with some of those gains is is probably one of the best recommendations I think we talked about today. Uh, beyond all oh, the other ones, for sure, yeah, for sure. I mean, and and I would convey that to your clients, to anyone listening to this. If if you're a landowner and you're able to generate revenue off your property, maybe you don't need a brand new side by side, but look at putting a couple thousand dollars away for herbiciding for TSI. Maybe to put that food plot in that you want to do. You know, look at it investing into your property, not you know, a new side-by-side that'll go faster through your property. Yeah. Keep your slow one so you can drive through it nice and slow and evaluate it and take in the the beauty that forest management gives your property. You know, forest management and wildlife management will provide to your property. Yeah, I agree. Kenny, let, let's uh, let's try to round it out. Anything you yep. want to talk specifically about that, that you think is, is really important from your perspective based on this conversation? 
Yeah, I think one of the like, and I touched on it from the get go was the was the education. There's a lot of educational tools out there, uh, you know, for proper forest management. You know, I I hate to see people getting their properties high graded because they don't know any better. Well, there's so much, so many tools out there, so many resources today, and uh, you know, just dig in to find them. I'll say forestry. We're a bunch of old school wood hicks and there's really a lack of social media presence of forest management type. There, there's more and more coming, but it's coming through the wildlife aspect, which is great. But, you know, you have to reach out to the old school sources because there's not, maybe I'm missing, but maybe there's not a huge Instagram, YouTube of dictionary available of forest management education, but things like Penn state extension has a lot of great resources. And, you know, reach out to a forester, you know, like my company's a consulting forester. We focus in, uh, private, you know, predominantly in for private forest land management, but we also work a lot for the public sector through the U S forest service, Pennsylvania fish and boat commission, Pennsylvania game commission, you know, so there's a lot of resources out there. So, you know, look into them and I just want to see proper forest management across the landscape would make uh, the rest of my career a success, even if I'm not the one doing it for you. Good point. And uh, I think a good way to end it. Let's uh, let's just kind of get some more information on you, how people could get a hold of you. We know you're in Kane, Pennsylvania. You consult in Pennsylvania. What's the mm-hmm. best way to get a hold of you specifically? Yeah. So the best way to get a hold of me, a lot of you know folks listening to the podcast I'm sure have Instagram. I'm at Ken J. Kane. So you can catch me on Instagram or you can uh, just get on your computer and Google generations forestry and we'll come up and my email on generations forestry is kjkane at generationsforestry.com. Shoot me an email and I'm always in to talk, you know, forestry, deer hunting, and I love tying the two together. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do because I'm as big of a deer hunter as anyone before you called me this evening, I was out back shooting my bow for the last hour. So awesome. You know, anyone wants to talk archery to deer hunting to forestry, give me a call. Great. I appreciate that. And hopefully when I'm out Western New York way, I get to meet you. Yeah. I've got, that'd be great. Yeah. I got clients this year. I'll, I'll be out that way. I know I'll be out there uh, a bunch next year. So maybe we can tie up and and, uh, love to meet up. Yep. It would be fun. It would be fun. All right. I appreciate you being on. I think we're going to have you on again, I hope. And, uh, you know, I'd love to, we'll, we'll keep the train rolling. I'm happy to have all these great guests on here and, it's just fun to learn and it's just, you know, it's all about deer. So, you know, eventually, uh, you know, what rubber meets the road, people want to know how to improve their deer hunting property and, yep. and that's what we're all about. So. Absolutely. All right, man, more, more to come from us in the future. All right. Thank you, John. All right, Kenny. See you, man. See Bye. ya. Bye-bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.